0: Thank you, Steve. It's nice to be with you all this morning. As he mentioned, my family and I, we have been based overseas in the Middle East for almost 10 years now. My wife, she's not here. She was at the earlier service. We have three kids, very young, three and a half, two and 10 months. So yeah, so our heads are mostly spinning. Our nights are mostly not sleeping. And, uh, that's the summary, including last night. Oh, goodness. Well, but we are, we're very glad to be here, especially these next three weeks. Um, we've been based in the States probably since the beginning of COVID. Uh, we were planning on coming home, actually, to have our son, uh, and then we got stuck here. So we've been here since then, but we are in the process of rebuilding a team, and we will be launching back overseas in January. And so during this time, it's been such a treat and an honor to visit here at Vintage and then some of the other churches around here. It's been a huge blessing. Um, these next three Sundays, uh, the kind of summary that I gave to Stephen Randall is Ephesians and prayer. And three Sundays is not quite enough to do a series on any book, but definitely not the book of Ephesians. (laughs) The book of Ephesians is packed. And so really what I want to do is just spotlight a few or give a few highlights of different passages in the book of Ephesians. And I know as a church, wide uh, as a church, you studied this book in 2018. Steve mentioned that to me. And so this may complement that, or maybe there will be different things that I highlight that weren't highlighted, but I hope that it will be a fresh insight for us. I hope that the Lord will speak to us through this. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you can. To Ephesians chapter 1. We obviously do not have the words on the screen this morning, so if you have your Bibles or your phones, that would be great to follow along. Um, before I read that, just to give a little bit of context, prayer, when it comes to prayer, prayer is something that I think most of us, miss, oh, it's easy to misunderstand prayer. It's usually looked at as a, a religious act or a duty or a requirement, Or it's something that we do because we have to or because we're scared or because we're in trouble. Right. That's the way that a lot of people, the common understanding of prayer. But I've come to understand prayer a little bit differently than that. And prayer really is a tool that God has given us to engage with him. It's a it's a way that we have access to be with God and Paul, especially in the book of Ephesians, but in other places, I think he helps us to understand how to do that. If prayer is talking to God, then it's important for us to remember the one that we're talking to. I was talking with Sydney just a moment ago, actually, and she mentioned this worship pastor. His name is Jeremy Riddle. He, he says theology will produce doxology. And when we read Paul, that's exactly what we see. Paul's words, he writes some of the most theologically complex things, and he doesn't know how to use periods. But when you read it, you read it and, and, and you try to comprehend it, but it, it leads you into this place of worship and to adoration and to prayer. And that, I think, is my heart as we enter into these three Sundays and talk about the book of Ephesians. So. Let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, and then I'll pray for us and we'll jump in. Paul says this. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his Glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Lord, our, our heart and our desire is just like this passage says that you would give to us this morning right now, a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. God, I ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our understanding Lord, that we would begin to see you in a more full way that we would get a glimpse of your glory Lord, of your majesty, of your holiness, of your splendor, Because when we see you, everything changes. Our lives are transformed. And Lord, I pray that these words, as your scripture is, that they would be living and active this morning. Lord, that we would take these words and eat this scroll and digest this, and it would begin to change and awaken our hearts, Lord. God, we want to know you. We want to encounter you. We want to see you. So would you visit us this morning in Jesus name? Amen. So before we jump into this passage, which after I read it, you could probably tell this is where Paul forgets how to use periods and uh, he forgets a lot of punctuation. He just does run on sentences over and over and over. But before we jump into this, I think what's helpful whenever I'm reading different passages, I always like to, I feel like I can understand the passages better when I see the context that these passages were written in. And so what I want to do, I want to give you a little bit of history, hopefully not bore you too much, and then also some of the context of the city of Ephesus um, to help us understand a little bit more. Now, Ephesus is located in modern-day Turkey. It's on the western coast of Turkey, on the Aegean Sea, and that's right next to the Mediterranean. A lot of the New Testament took place in what is now modern-day Turkey. So a lot of the New Testament took place there in Ephesus, obviously, but that whole region of western Turkey is what was considered Asia Minor. So whenever you read the Bible and you see Asia Minor, That is now, modern day, the west coast of Turkey, right on the Aegean Sea. The seven churches of the Book of Revelation took place there. Obviously, uh, Colossae uh, is is there. Um, Antioch. Antioch is there as well. And so I think uh, we don't realize that. We usually think Greece, because yes, there were some places in Greece, and then Rome, and then obviously Jerusalem. But much of the New Testament was written there. And Ephesus specifically stands out among others. Ephesus was home of one of the largest revivals in church history. Now, this book, the book of Ephesians, I want to give you a short timeline so that you can see when this book was actually written. Paul spent a few years in Ephesus, and then in AD 55, Paul leaves Ephesus. This is in Acts chapter 20. And he leaves Ephesus, and he goes to Corinth, for almost 3 months or so and that's in around 57 is when he lands in Corinth and in Corinth is when he writes the book to the Romans or the letter to the Romans after Corinth he leaves Corinth and he stops in Troas and Miletus now Miletus is a city that was just next to Ephesus And this is considered Paul's fourth missionary journey. If if you're familiar with that language, in the book of Acts, we see the different missionary journeys that Paul went on. This is considered his fourth missionary journey. So he leaves Corinth, and he goes back through, but he does not stop at Ephesus this time. He goes to this city, Miletus. And in Miletus, he calls the elders from the church in Ephesus to Miletus, and he meets with them there. After Miletus, he leaves, and he goes back to Jerusalem, where he was imprisoned for two years. From 57 to 59 AD, he was imprisoned in Jerusalem, and through that time, he, uh, they realized there's not really a huge need for him to be imprisoned. He's not guilty of anything, so they send him to Rome, to be imprisoned in Rome. And during that time is when he's shipwrecked in Malta, at the end of the book of Acts. You're probably familiar with it. And when he gets to Rome, he's there for two years, 60 to 62. That is when he wrote this letter. To the Ephesians. So this is about five years after he was there. Now, he was in Ephesus for a while. He was there for a couple of years, longer than some of his other stops. But it was five years after that, when he was in prison in Rome, that he wrote this letter, or most likely wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus in the Roman world was probably one of the most prominent cities. It was home of the goddess Artemis or the goddess Diana, uh, the Greek goddess Diana, or the Roman goddess Diana, excuse me, the Greek goddess Artemis, which we'll talk about in a second. But it was also one of the economic centers. Ephesus was like a cultural and social hub for Asia Minor and the surrounding areas during that time. Um, Ephesus... Had, uh, it had a population of about 200, 250,000 people, which might not sound like a lot in today's language, but that was a lot during that time. It was a desirable place to be. The way that I like to compare it is like Los Angeles or New York, right? It's one of those places that, that you want to go to and that it's, Los Angeles is like the cultural hub of this nation and obviously much more. That was what Ephesus was like during this time, up until about 320, 350 A.D., and that's when it started to decline, and Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire and Constantinople, obviously. But before that, Ephesus was the center. It was the hub. Everyone had wanted to go there. The Roman pro Council was based there, but it also had a religious dynamic. As I mentioned, it was where the goddess, the Greek goddess Artemis was and the Roman goddess of Diana. That's that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it had a very religious dynamic. They were familiar with that thing. In fact, they were familiar with religion. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, you see a story where Paul, as he's going through this city, preaching the gospel, people are turning and becoming Christian. In such a way that there's this guy in Acts chapter 19 named Demetrius and this guy Demetrius gets upset. Why is Paul doing this? People are now forgetting Artemis and starting to follow Jesus. We don't want him to do that because now they're not buying our statues to Artemis. We can't sell these things. So there's actually this riot that breaks out in Acts chapter 19. And really, it was an economic issue. It wasn't about worshiping Artemis or not. It was an economic issue. I actually looked up a a quick summary of Artemis just to give you a little context of who Artemis was. This is just a very short because I have not studied Greek mythology or anything. But it says this. The Greek god of Artemis was the goddess of wild animals, the hunt and vegetation and chastity and childbirth. Okay, so all of that, that's what Artemis represented now. What took place in Ephesus, as I said earlier, is one of the largest revivals in church history. In Acts 19, it says that there were men and women who had been practicing magic arts that came into the city streets and they were burning their books. So this, I like to compare it, sometimes we're based in the Muslim world, I like to compare it sometimes to what, what we see in the Muslim world as Islam is so popular. What if in Muslim countries people started burning the Koran. That, that is the way to understand what happened in Ephesus. It was a very religious city dedicated to this goddess Artemis, but the gospel was spreading so quickly and powerfully, and people were coming to know Jesus, that the men and women took their books and they burned them in the city streets because they wanted to follow Jesus. Now, another point of context that I think is helpful to understand is the character of this letter. It's a little bit different from Paul's other letters, maybe similar to Colossians, but very different from Corinthians. Usually Paul is writing to maybe correct or to exhort for different things. But in the letter to the Ephesians, you find much more of a, a, an attitude of worship and a central focus on the person of Jesus. There's not a lot of correction. In fact, I don't think there is any correction that he is writing in this letter to the church in Ephesus. And so that's important to note as well. So now let's move on to this passage, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is a prayer, right? The way I like to call this is an apostolic prayer. Throughout the New Testament and the epistles, you see different prayers that Paul and others wrote. And these prayers are helpful guides to us. When you don't know what to pray, this is what I'd love to say. When you don't know what to pray, just pray the Bible. you're sitting down and you're ready to pray, you don't know what to say, words aren't coming to you, open up this passage and just say what it says. This prayer is God's will. There is no doubt about that because it is in the Bible. And so whenever you don't know what to pray, pray this prayer. I like to think of this passage in three ways. First, Paul tells us what he's asking for. Second, he tells us why he's asking for these things. And then third, he goes on to describe That why, which is regarding the power that God gives us to to those who believe. So the first thing is, what is Paul praying for? He says, I'm praying that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, verses 15 and 16. I'm praying that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of your heart would be opened. That. A common reference that we think of sometimes is Isaiah 11, the spirit of wisdom and revelation or counsel, that as we come to him, our eyes would be open, that we would be able to see him. But then he goes on to describe why he's praying for these things in verses 17. Excuse me. uh, Let me see. Sorry. verses, Yes, 18 onward, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what he says, that you may know the hope of your calling, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you who believe. So He he's praying that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. But then he tells you why he's praying these things. He's praying so that you would understand the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance and the exceedingly great the, the greatness of his power towards you who believe. So let's take those one by one. First, he says the hope of his, I was going to say power, but it's not power. The hope to which he has called you to. This is where Paul, it's like, Paul, calm down, okay? We need to try to understand and follow with you here. The hope of his calling towards you. Hope is a unique word in the Bible. And I think Paul best describes this in First Corinthians 15. Paul describes hope in First Corinthians 15 in relation to the resurrection. Paul says that if Christ were to have just died for our sins, we're to be pitied more than any other man. Now, the crucifixion, we could not be saved without the crucifixion, but Paul places such an emphasis on the resurrection that he says if Christ only had died, we're to be pitied more than all men. Because his resurrection is what gives us hope that Jesus is coming back again and that we also will be raised in the same way that he was raised. So he's praying that we would understand the hope of his calling towards us. As we start to grasp hope, we face different things in life. But as we grasp hope, we remember, oh, everything that we're experiencing today is temporary. There's a day in the future We have a hope in the future that Jesus will come back to the earth, that Jesus will make every wrong thing right, and that not only that, he will actually raise us from the dead. I love this passage in Colossians. It talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think that is very frequently misunderstood. Christ in us is powerful. Don't get me wrong. But the reason Christ is in us is to testify that there is a future hope that we have and a glory that we have in the age to come. Christ is in us today and we have power today, which we're going to talk about. But the reason he is there is to point us forward to the day when Jesus comes back to the earth and makes every wrong thing right. It's the day when the kingdom of God is established. Injustice ends and his, the, the, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The second thing he says is that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when we think of being Christians and following Jesus, I think we usually think, you know, we have a great inheritance and that's true. In fact, four verses earlier in uh, verse 10, Paul talks about the inheritance that we have as Christians in Christ. We have a great inheritance. But here he uses a different word. He's talking about the inheritance that he has in us. And we don't think about that very often. We don't think that Jesus actually has something that he's looking forward to getting in us. Because usually when we approach God, unfortunately, and this is normal, but it is unfortunate. Unfortunately, we usually approach him with either condemnation or we approach him with shame or because of our sin. And so it's hard to remember that Jesus is actually a bridegroom and that he is desirous of us, his bride. That he's actually standing, waiting, and looking, and inviting us to come in. I mean, if you think of it in very plain terms, when you think of a husband, and when you think of his wife, a husband desires his bride. Now, whether that bride feels condemnation, shame, or not, the husband, nine times out of ten, is not thinking about any of those things. He's waiting and longing and wanting to be with his bride. Now, that's the way that Jesus wants to relate to us. We don't remember that. We forget that. And we get caught up in our condemnation and shame. But he's looking at us and saying, I want to be with you. I have an inheritance in you. And I desire you. Since Exodus, God has promised an inheritance. God, has been, God was promised an inheritance. But because of Israel's sin, the storyline grew difficult. The progression of the Old Testament with Israel has three simple parts. God has an inheritance. God has to forsake his inheritance because he is holy and they have idolatry. God brings his inheritance back to himself through Christ. Throughout all of the Old Testament, we see that Israel is the apple of his eye. He desires them and Because they could not overcome that sin on their own, he made a way through himself for them to have access to him, for us who are now grafted in to have access to him. And now we, with Israel, as the church, are his inheritance. And the third thing, the third reason he says he's praying for this, praying uh, that that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, is that they would know the greatness of his power towards us who believe. So he says three things. Pray that they would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, not any inheritance, a glorious inheritance. And third, that they may know the greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, the first two, the hope of his calling and the riches of his inheritance, those are very future oriented. Those are things that keep us going today, but they're related to the future. They don't come to fulfillment until the future. But this third thing, that they may know the greatness of his power, that is something that happens now. That they may know the greatness, the exceeding greatness of his power towards you who believe. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he explains that power. What is that power? That's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, but not just when he raised him from the dead. When he chose to seat him in the heights of the heavens, uh, far above every rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that's named. But not just that. He keeps going and he says it's the power that when he put all things under his feet and made Christ the head of the church Four things. The power that he showed when he raised him from the dead, when he seated him in the heights of the heavens, above every other rule, dominion, power, and authority. The power that, uh, I always forget the third, the power that when he put all things under his feet, because it's similar to the second, when he put all things under his feet, and then fourth, when he made Christ the head of the church. And he's saying and praying that you, that me, that we as the church would understand this power today. Because this power is for us today. Now, as Christians, as humans, as sinners, we live difficult lives, right? We live a life where we face challenges every day, where we face sin, where we face temptation. But the way that we overcome that ch- those challenges, that sin... That condemnation is through this power. This is a power that I don't even think we can comprehend. This is the power that that God exerted in Jesus in order to bring all things together to receive his inheritance. That is the same power that we have access to today. Now, the church in Ephesus was a church given to idolatry, but a church that saw the greatest revival, one of the greatest revivals. The library in Ephesus was very commonly known. It was a library that was similar to Alexandria. This historical context helps to understand this. And these are people that understand power because they had seen that power in these idolatrous gods, and now he's saying that that power is not only something that magicians do. That power is not only something that's menial, but that power is something that can come and that can transform your life. This prayer, I remember when I first found this prayer, I was probably in, in high school. Actually, Tom Vickroy was probably there. Tom Vickroy was my Bible study uh, small group leader for all of my high school. And this this prayer, when I first came across this prayer, I, heard, I had somebody tell me, this is the prayer that when you don't know what else to pray, I already said this, but when you don't know what else to pray, pray this prayer. But not only that, this prayer, if you pray this prayer every day, this prayer will change your life. Because when you pray this prayer, as we did earlier when we sang this song, Hallelujah, as we walked into church and began to worship, you remember things about God. You remember who God is. And despite what you were feeling, you probably were able to look for a minute and encounter God in worship. When we pray this prayer, that is what Paul is praying. That the eyes of our hearts would be open so that we can see Him. Because when we see Him, the entirety of our lives is transformed. When we see Him, we actually are changed. So what if, just like we worship this morning and sing that chorus this morning, what if every day you can come before God and pray this simple prayer, and what if he answers, and the eyes of your hearts start to open? Your days begin to change. You begin to spend each day differently. You begin to relate to challenges differently. You begin to relate to sin, to temptation, to condemnation, to shame differently, because you're, the eyes of your hearts have, of our hearts have been opened to see him and encounter him now as we as we bring this to a close I want to invite the worship team up and I think there's two there's two things that I think of with this passage that are ways that we can respond or ways that we can pray this morning the first is if you have not felt that the eyes of your heart are being open this morning. Or if you have mostly felt distracted. Or if you've mostly felt condemnation because of sin. I think that is a way that we can pray this morning. Either for your, you can pray yourself or if you want to pray with a ministry team. I think that's a way that we can pray. We can pray that God would give us that revelation. That he would open the eyes of our hearts. That we could see him and adore him. That we would bow before him, that we would see his holiness, things that we cannot comprehend so much so that when we read it or when we think about it, we just adore things that we're not even supposed to be able to comprehend, but lead us to worship. That's the first thing and way that we can pray in this home. But the second, I think that there's some of us that probably need a taste of the power that he describes. Maybe there's a challenge in your life, or maybe there's a sickness, or maybe there's an internal struggle, or you're in a season of your life where you need God to speak. This passage is true. Despite our faith, despite your faith, for you who believe, whether your faith is strong or weak, this passage is true. Which means that the power that God exerted to raise Christ from the dead, seat him in the heights of the heavens, put everything under him in submission to him and make him the head of the church. That power is something you have access to this morning. And that doesn't change. That power is something you have access to this morning. So as we go into this time of prayer and this time of worship, That's the way that I want to encourage us to respond. You may not have words. Prayer, as I said at the beginning, it's not a it's not a just a a list of petitions. It's not a shopping list that you just rattle off things to God. Prayer is this place of talking to Him, just or just being with Him and looking at Him. And that might be a new definition for some of you, but during this ministry time, try to let's release those distractions. And let's enter in that place where we just look. That's what adoration is. We just look. If it helps you to close your eyes and visualize the throne room or visualize Jesus and gaze upon him. Because when we see him, that's when that transformation happens. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, you are so good, you are so beautiful. Lord, you are completely other than. And Lord, we can so easily be distracted by our sin, by our condemnation, by our shame, or anything else that's distracting us. But we know, God, that you are sitting there looking at us, desiring to be with us because we are your inheritance. So this morning, God, I ask as we enter into this place that we would abide with you. Lord, that we would sit with you. That we would look at you. Not because we need something, not to necessarily ask you anything, but just to adore you, to look at you, to be fascinated by you. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts this morning, right now. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation. In Jesus' name.